Folks, if you're liking what you're getting from 30MPC, the number one way you can support us is by subscribing to our newsletter. Every week, you only get two emails. On Monday, you get a content roll-up of everything that dropped last week. And on Fridays, I pick one topic and I personally write a deep dive on things like how to cold call, how to run a discovery call, or even how to hire an AE. So if you're liking what you're getting here, take two seconds, go to the show notes. You'll see a button to subscribe to our newsletter, or you can go to 30mpc.com backslash newsletter and do it there. We'll catch you soon. Cheers. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to this episode of 30 Minutes to President's Club. My name is Armand Farouk, and I'm here with my co-host, Nick Zagielski. And today, we have the man with blue hair, the man who cold calls people and tries to sell them pizzas to practice his phone skills. It is the one and only Sam Nelson, and today, Sam is also coming bearing gifts. Nick, why should people listen? There's two reasons. One, Sam has documented what is called the Agoji sequence, which is one of the most effective sales outbound sequences, cadences, whatever you want to call it, that is out there. And he's been extremely generous, Armand. I think because he likes me, maybe not because I don't think he really liked you very much. But what he did was he documented his outbound sequence and he put it in a format. And we actually added our commentary to break down why the different elements work. And you can steal it for free in the show notes. There's a second reason why you might listen to this episode, and it is that Sam is one of the most ruthlessly efficient prospectors out there. What he does is he has identified all of the components of prospecting and personalization and sequencing, and he's figured out the stuff that like really doesn't move the needle very much. And he's also figured out the stuff that is really effective. And so if you want to learn how to get the most juice from your squeeze, how to 80-20 your prospecting, this episode is a must listen. A three, a two, a one, a go get it. Today's tip to optimize your sales day is brought to you by Boomerang. If you get an email and the action required on that email is going to take you less than two minutes to do, do it on the spot. It's not worth adding it to your to-do list, having to look at the item, remember what you need to do. That's going to take you more than two minutes anyway. So do it on the spot, get it off your plate. Now we documented our best templates and tips to help you optimize your sales day with our friends at Boomerang. And you can get that documentation for free at the link in the show notes. Today's tip to optimize your sales day is brought to you by Boomerang. Obsessive checking of your inbox is a total waste of time and brain power. Instead, commit to checking your inbox and responding to email at set times throughout the day. I'm a fan of Boomerang's pause inbox function to keep myself from getting distracted by my inbox. Now, we documented our best templates and tools to help you optimize your sales day with our friends at Boomerang, and you can get that for free at the link in the show notes. This week's actionable prospecting tactic is from Sixth Sense, who shows you the prospects who are most likely to buy so you can get more meetings with fewer activities. Personalizing cold emails requires you to only change the first paragraph in a trigger template. All you have to do is tie the research to the problem you solve in paragraph one, and then switch that out while you leave paragraphs two and three, your solution and call to action, exactly the same. And so we are giving you six of these trigger templates with our partners at Sixth Sense. The link is in the show notes. Your Zoom Info Actionable Insight tactic is called Jane's Moving Up. Why? Because that's the email subject line you'll use when you get a real-time notice that your prospect Jane just got promoted. From there in the email, explain how Zoom Info helps rising sales leaders win their first 90 days on the job by highlighting coaching opportunities or supporting a team-wide prospecting push. And you can try out this trigger-based email template for prospect promotion and four other scenarios inspired by Zoom Info's go-to-market plays. Link in the show notes. 
Here's my secret to being a sales superhuman. It's auto reminders for everything. If I expect any reply from a prospect, I press command H and superhuman pops it right back into my inbox. If I don't get a reply in two days, that means if you handle an objection, if you suggest times for a meeting, or if you ask for cuts back on red lines, always create a two day reminder task and assume they will not reply. So if you want to follow up on time, every time you can get a free month of superhuman by checking it out in the show notes. All right, Sam, welcome back to the show. You remember we start every single episode with your top three actionable takeaways, so let's get your three. Okay, number one. So when coaching a low performer on an SDR team, the first thing that you should check is where they're allocating their time. This didn't used to be very easy for coaches to find, but with sales engagement platforms, it's actually gotten very easy. You just look at the time-consuming sequences and see who's in there. When you are looking at your lowest performing rep on a team, most of the time, if you look into who is in their time-consuming sequences, you'll find it's the wrong people. So it's a very important first thing to check. Otherwise, you can spend a lot of time trying to coach them on things that aren't the underlying problem. Boom. What's number two? Number two is have a five-minute time limit for research and email writing. So the most lethal mistake in cold email writing is not making an email not detailed enough, it's actually wasting too much time on an individual email. Like no matter how good they are, most of them will never be seen. And so this is something that's important because it's very dangerous. Like writing really long detailed emails can actually feel productive, even though it's not productive for your overall strategy. Very nice. Round us out, Sam. What's number three? And then number three is don't personalize your value proposition. So in your emails, that is a time where a lot of energy can be wasted. So there are a few parts. There's like the subject line, there's your opening line or two, and then there's the value prop. Like you can get away with having a very short, simple, clear explanation of the value that your company provides that can be completely templated and work just as well in every email. Personalization is relatively effective at the very beginning where you want to prove that you are an actual human. And so spend your personalization energy at the very beginning to prove that you're an email and get the open rate. You don't need to reinvent the wheel on the value prop every single time. Make it very short, make it very concise, and make it very clear. So Sam, going back to number one, I I can't count the number of times I have tried to break down messaging for someone only to realize they were sending that messaging to the completely wrong person. And so it's really scary because part of diagnosing a performance issue is figuring out where someone is spending their time, and that's hard to always figure out. And so from your experience, for everyone listening, if they wanted to do some self-diagnosis, where are some of the common areas where you see folks who are lower performers wasting their time versus the top performers? Okay, so the number one thing, and something that's very easy to check, is just, are the right titles in the time-consuming sequences? And so one tactical way to deal with this as an individual rep is to have a top AE or a top-performing SDR look at who is in your most time-consuming sequence. And people that have good instincts for this can very quickly tell you who's a waste of time. There are some sequences that are more time-consuming than others. For example, one that's going to have a personalized email and phone calls will be much more time-consuming than one that is pure automated emails. Okay, so if it's something that includes email personalization and phone calls, that needs to be reserved for people who are important because it's going to take five or 10 minutes to execute it, um, where another one might take five or 10 seconds. And so make sure that your time is spent on the most important people. 
Gotcha. So in other words, who are they deeming to be a good use of their time is the question that you're trying to answer, right? Yep. Bingo. I'm curious, Sam, oftentimes the other thing that I see is I'll see a mismatch where people will go, it's like, okay, this week I'm on the tailoring kick. And what that means is every prospect is going to get 20 cold calls a week and everyone is going to get a Starbucks gift card and everyone is going to get a coffee mug, whether they're a recruiting analyst or the chief people officer. And I feel like a lot of people tend to mismatch where they choose to spend time in terms of personalization. And so when you direct your SDRs, how much of my stuff should be the common like boilerplate copy pasted or mostly copy pasted stuff versus deeply tailored prospecting messaging? So I always recommend separating it into three different buckets. One would be people who can become an immediate opportunity. And those people will go into a sequence with a customized email and with phone calls. There are other people who might benefit from using the product. They might like it, but they're not going to be an immediate opportunity for the company. Those people can go into automated sequences. Then there are people who are completely irrelevant to everything. And those people just don't go in anything at all. So you can usually put it down to those three different buckets. And if you go from just like treating everyone the same to treating those three groups differently, you can get pretty strong results really fast. So Sam, I want to talk about the differences between number one and number two. So people who can be an immediate opportunity versus people who cannot. Can you talk about what typically goes into that distinction? For example, would you be okay with that person being a champion, maybe like a director of sales development? If we use outreach as an example, right? I imagine a director of SDR would be a great champion, but you're probably going to need executive buy-off from a VP of sales. Would you consider both a champion and an exec sponsor to be immediate opportunities? Or are you reserving immediate opportunity only for that VP of sales title? So at Outreach, it actually was effective to reach out to the VP of sales development, even though they weren't the ultimate decision maker. Like pipeline is that hot of a topic where we could reach out to the VP of sales development. They were pumped about Outreach. And if the VP of sales knows that there's some way to increase pipeline, we could get to them very easily. So that's why I put that caveat, like an immediate opportunity. Sometimes there are strong enough champions where that can make sense. But I would say that's the exception and not the rule. To what extent would you be reaching out to prospective users of the thing? So let's use outreach as the example again. Like, okay, the number one category is like the CRO VP of sales. So the number two might be that VP of sales development who I guess they might spill in a bucket number one where they can be an immediate opportunity. But like, let's say there's a hard to break into account that you really want to get into. Are you advising somebody should spend time contacting prospective end users of the thing? One way that you can do this without burning a ton of time is we had one automated sequence that was fully automated where the entire point of the sequence was to ask for a referral to the right person. Okay, like Once people had heard about outreach and maybe an SDR had used it somewhere else, they really love it. And so we would do an entire sequence just basically asking for a referral to the right person. Because once we have a referral to the right person, we can put them into the referral sequence and we'll get a reply most of the time. So that's one way to run that play with end users that are far from the action that can still be productive in getting you an initial opportunity. Well, so I'm sort of kicking myself because I used to sell to law firms and I would sell this law firm time tracking software that would save the attorneys a ton of time on tracking their time. But we ultimately would have to sell to like the COO or the CFO. But 
I knew that like the partners would be the end users. And so I would, I wasted a ton of time putting together extremely hyper personalized outreach to there's like hundreds of attorneys at these law firms and only one CFO. And I'm thinking about if I had followed your advice, I would have gotten so many more warm referrals to that person. So could you walk us through what what does that actually look like and how can you standardize a referral sequence in a way that doesn't feel like they're just being blasted and being asked for the right person like everyone else is? Okay, cool. Well, actually, let me clarify because like the semantics are a little confusing. Like, so we'd have one sequence that was focused on eliciting referrals. Let's call that a referral request sequence. These are for people who maybe would be ignored if it wasn't so efficient to reach out to them with the sales engagement platform. And then once we get referrals, then we put them into a referral sequence, which the referral sequence is the most effective sequence that I had ever seen in my history of working at Outreach, right? So once we get referrals, then we put them into the referral sequence. So there are two, kind of two parts, eliciting the referral and then also putting them into the referral sequence. So I was referring to the eliciting a referral sequence. So when when would you typically use the eliciting a referral sequence? And what would that typically look like? Okay. So in a situation where you have maybe end users have maybe used your product before, or they're excited about your product, or they would be happy if your product came into the company. Okay. That's when you would reach out to end users for that. And it, you only do calls if an individual email has been opened to X number of times. That way you can cast a wide net with it. It's not going to take time away from reaching out to decision makers. Um, but you can still kind of maybe put a little bit more effort into people who are especially engaged. Can you talk about the number of people that you might put into that sequence for any given account? I'm thinking about in the context of law firms that I would be prospecting where there were 1,200 end user partners at the law firm and I suspect you would not recommend I put 1,200 people into an identical sequence on January 2nd, 2023 and just assault the law firm. So what's sort of your take on how people should think about that? If you are going to approach a list of accounts, the most common setup is maybe 200 accounts. Okay, And in that situation, you can afford to have one, maybe two people in like an Egoji sequence, a time-consuming sequence at any given time. But you want to have always have a line in the water with a decision maker in your time-consuming sequence. And then maybe put two or three people in a fully automated sequence in each one of those accounts. Got it. Can you define what the Egoji sequence is for the audience? And then one thing that always tripped me up was like, I would finish the sequence and I'm like, when do I add someone back into it? And I'm back into that sequence. Do I reach out a different way? Like, because to your point of wanting the line in the water with the DM at all times, like I would sometimes struggle in terms of what do I do? They didn't respond. Yeah. Well, so if you want to deep dive into a Goji, you can go to my, you can go to my LinkedIn and then there's, it'll go through all the different parts of it. But on a super high level, what the Goji sequence does is you write your first email. I recommend a very efficient one where you kind of do personalization up front and put a clear value prop, but it's compatible with any email. But basically what that sequence does is it leverages that email in 10 different parts of the process without using any extra time. So you do your personalization up front and then you can reuse that when you do your cold calls and then the following emails will recycle that content. And so you can kind of milk that personalization like 10 different times. There's more than one person at a company where you can start an opportunity. And so best case scenario, you just move on to someone else who can be an immediate opportunity. And then you can kind of keep going to new people there. 
Once you run out of those, then you can go back to someone else. After about 30 days, they've pretty much forgotten about you completely, whether we like to believe that or not. And so I always say like a minimum of 30 days before you reach back out to someone else. But if there are other people where an an opportunity can start, go with them first. So Sam, I'm curious, we've talked about a couple different sequence types here. Why don't we start with first just how many outbound campaigns you have, right? It sounds like you're doing some sort of generalized value prop per persona, and then a couple of purpose-based sequences. For example, one when you actually get the referral. How many sequences should I realistically be maintaining and using on a recurring basis as an SDR? Well, as few as possible. So when you are setting up your like your outreach strategy or your SCP strategy, you want to have a bias to simplicity. So assume fewer unless you have a really compelling reason not to. Because I look under the hood at a lot of companies, and one really common thing is it's like, okay, here is our sequence for high-priority people. And then we want to have a different sequence for every persona, and then a different sequence for different geos. And then we have want to have a different sequence for every time zone. And all of a sudden, you have hundreds of different sequences, and it can become really unmanageable and really hard for you to get information as a manager. So you want to keep it as low as possible. Ideally, like say you separate people into decision makers and kind of lower priority prospects, maybe end users who are excited and people who are not useful at all. You want to, I like the best scenario would be like one outbound sequence for your decision makers and then one for your lower priority prospects. But there are situations where it's like, okay, like maybe the value prop is similar enough for the AE and SDR and enablement use case, but for marketing, it's fundamentally different. So we really have to have a different sequence there. So, but have a bias to simplicity for the number of sequences that you make. Um, If you get too many sequences, it can create a huge mess. A lot of people underestimate the downside of having a really complicated sales engagement platform. Yeah, I remember there was a point where we had something like 20 sequences, and we then pared it down to two plus one. And so there was, there were two sequences, and (laughs) one was above the line, and the other was below the line. And then the one other one was for the most important trigger event. That was no matter who it was above or below, if they did this thing, we knew that would be buying intent for them, right? I love that. Well, okay, here's another thing, because you brought up that kind of trigger event and how you had a separate sequence for that. One thing that you can do, the great thing about the Agoji sequence is that it's compatible with any kind of initial email. So there are trigger events too. If someone came for outreach, like if someone came from another company that used outreach, we would still use the Agoji sequence. We would just have a template for that email. But then the fundamental mm. sequence structure for the Egoji is fine. Or if um, they had recently gone into a role, we'd have a template for that, but plug it into the Egoji sequence. That way we could have this sequence structure that we know is sound, but it can still apply to these different use cases. A lot of times when it's a different situation, it's a question of copy, not sequence structure. And so you can have fewer sequences, but you can just have that different template in there. And it's not like you sacrifice too much on the data because if you use a template then you can get data on individual templates. So you can see which of these trigger events is getting the best response. Interesting. And so I always thought I had to have a different sequence for each trigger, right? Because I was falling into the fallacy that, let's say someone raised a round, the second, third, fourth, and fifth touches should be referencing the fact that they raised a round. But are you seeing that as long as the first message is tailored and targeted towards that trigger, it doesn't really matter that the third, fourth, and fifth 
speak in that exact same language? Yeah, well, it depends if you're using the Egoji sequence or not, because the Egoji sequence is designed to leverage that first email, and it, it leverages it 10 different times. And so that's why that sequence is really versatile. So you can bring up the fact that they were they recently went into their role, and the next the next emails are going to reference that. The calls are going to reference that. And so um, for that specific sequence structure, it's really versatile, and you can kind of plug and play with that first email and, and use it for a lot of different things. Without going line by line of each email, for those in the audience who haven't seen the Agoji sequence before, let's use that example of someone's raised around, for instance. How might you resurface that five to 10 more times in the Agoji sequence? So you're going to do your initial email, and then a few days later, there's going to be a reply email to that email. So when you're setting up your sequence and outreach, there's new threads, and then there are reply emails. And so you'll do a new thread with the initial email, and then the follow-up emails are going to be this really short one-line thing that calls attention to that initial email. And those actually will get a higher response rate than the initial email that you spent all of your time on. And that actually works twice. Like the second reply email will still get a stronger response rate than your original one. So that's kind of in practice how that works. And then for cold calls, you just simply click on the email tab and you can see what you wrote in your first email if you want to leverage that in a cold call. Gotcha. So you're using that initial trigger event in your first email. You're bubbling that up twice. So you're effectively resurfacing that tailoring. And so even if it's not a raised around sequence, it effectively is because that's the first touch you used and you're just raising that twice more. And then you're referencing that same thing in your cold call opener or in your talk track as you go through two or three cold calls. So they're effectively being hit with the same trigger or value prop five times or so, even though you really only had to have one template up front that referenced the fact that they raised around. Yeah, exactly. So the, all the Egoji sequence does is it just it amplifies that first email 10 different times. And so... That's the whole strategy. It amplifies it 10 different times without you having to spend additional time for the prospect. So in the prep call, Sam, one of the things you were talking about was you have a unique take on overdue tasks, and I'd love to hear what it is. Okay, so overdue tasks, like tasks do not show up for an SDR to accomplish until they are overdue, okay? And so like a lot of times managers, really well-intentioned managers will say, hey, I don't want to see any overdue tasks. I see a lot of tasks overdue. And they don't realize that, well, that's just the way that it's set up. Like you don't see a task until it's technically overdue. It's only due for like a millionth of a second. And so one good rule of thumb is to not let tasks get more than two or three days overdue. It's better to always have overdue tasks that aren't crazy overdue, but to always have overdue tasks than to totally be caught up. Because if you always have overdue tasks, you always have things to do. And as long as it's not getting more than two or three days overdue, it's not going to affect the sequence. Like if you look at the Egoji sequence, it looks insanely aggressive because everything's really close together. But it's taking into account that tasks are going to be one or two days overdue. And so it's better to have a whole bunch of slightly overdue tasks where you always have things to execute than to be totally up to date and be sitting on your hands a lot. 
the worst thing ever is when you're like, you've got a free hour and you're like, I'm, I'm in the mood to hit some prospecting, which is a very rare mood, but it occasionally strikes and you open up your sales engagement platform and you're like, all right, let's do this thing. And you've got nothing to do. And you wasted that, that wonderful mood where you were ready to cold call because you had nothing overdue. It's brilliant. We are getting overdue with the time left for this interview. We've only got a couple minutes left, so we got to move to the last question, Sam. And the last question is this. We've talked about a lot of really good things that salespeople should be doing. The last question is about a shouldn't. And so the final question is, what's one bad habit that you see a lot of salespeople exhibiting that you think they need to break because it hurts them more than it helps? So when people get really strong or a really emotional rejection, they'll change their strategy based on one data point. You have to be careful of that because you can get mean rejections from the best strategies. You have to be really careful and recognize that this is a numbers game. You don't want to automatically assume your entire strategy is faulty just because you get one emotional rejection. Like at some point in your SDR career, someone is going to get mad at your email and they're going to copy your VP of sales and they're going to copy your SDR manager and you're going to say, okay, I'm never going to do that again. And maybe you made an honest mistake. That's fine. But you just need to know that like, just because you get a bad rejection doesn't necessarily mean that it was a bad strategy. And also that your VP of sales and SDR managers are getting that all the time. Like, don't get too upset about it. Extremely important. I had that happen once. And the best thing that ever happened to me was my VP emailed me separately and he said, great work. Keep it up. Sam, thank you for joining us. Everybody, stick around for a 60-second recap coming up soon. Otter AI's Otter Pilot for Sales gives you the freedom to sell on your discovery calls by taking notes for you. One of the best ways to deepen your discovery is to ask your prospect about the impetus behind their goals. So when a prospect tells me they want to advertise on more sales podcasts, I'll say, well, it's not every day that you wake up and decide you want to sponsor a podcast. What's causing you to even explore this in the first place? Now, we put together the ultimate discovery checklist with our friends at Otter AI, which you can get for free at the link in the show notes. Today's tactic to triple your connect rate is brought to you by RocketReach, who provides data that lets you reach out to the right person at the right account at the right time. Every time you're reaching out to an account, pull down the contacts again. Yes, I know it sucks, but the average tech tenure is two years, which means 50% of the workforce turns over every year. So look up the account, pull anyone who was hired, and scratch anyone who was left. And one way you can pull verified and accurate data is with RocketReach. So if you like this, check out their toolkit on eight ways to triple your cold call connects in the show notes. Today's deal acceleration cheat code is brought to you by Pipedrive, which is a CRM built by sellers for sellers. The best way to drive your pipeline forward is to every single day, pull up a list of all of your open opportunities and look at each opportunity by stage and think, what can I do today that will increase my likelihood of winning this deal? That's how you keep your ops moving forward in between meetings that you have on the calendar. Now, we documented five cheat codes that can help you cut your sales cycle in half with Pipedrive. There's a link in the show notes to steal them. Your top four takeaways from this episode with Sam Nelson include, number one, if you're coaching a low performer, or even if you're just trying to coach yourself, go look at where their time is being allocated. Find the sequences that are most used, filter by them, and see who is in those sequences. Because nine times out of ten, it's usually the wrong personas, the wrong people. Number two, break your sequences into people who could be an immediate opportunity, aka a decision maker or a strong champion, versus people who cannot be an immediate opportunity, but might still be helpful. Number three, the value proposition should be standardized based on the persona. 
In other words, that middle part of a cold email stays the same, and this allows you to have as few sequences as humanly possible. And then if you have key personalization triggers, all you do is you use snippets and templates for that. And then lastly, number four, if you have overdue tasks, that is not a bad thing. In fact, you should always have a couple of overdue tasks. Just try to make sure that they don't get more than two to three days overdue, but you can always have a place to go if you want to prospect a little bit more today. Alrighty, Nick, how can people help us out? We talked a lot in this episode about that Agoji sequence. And as a reminder, we documented it with Sam. We broke down why it works and you can get it for free at the link in the show notes. The interesting thing about the Agoji sequence, Sam spent years and years and years meeting with hundreds of outreach customers and looking at the sequences that they designed. And the Agoji sequence was built on the insights that he had about what actually gets a customer to respond to your prospecting outreach. And so even if you're not going to use Sam's Agoji sequence, you should go steal it and compare it to what you're doing right now because I promise you will get more yield if you adopt some of the stuff that he talked about in this episode and in that Agoji sequence we documented with him. So go steal it and we'll see you next week on the show. Today's tip to optimize your sales day is brought to you by Boomerang. Obsessive checking of your inbox is a total waste of time and brain power. Instead, commit to checking your inbox and responding to email at set times throughout the day. I'm a fan of Boomerang's pause inbox function to keep myself from getting distracted by my inbox. Now, we documented our best templates and tools to help you optimize your sales day with our friends at Boomerang, and you can get that for free at the link in the show notes. This week's actionable prospecting tactic is from Sixth Sense, who shows you the prospects who are most likely to buy so you can get more meetings with fewer activities. Personalizing cold emails requires you to only change the first paragraph in a trigger template. All you have to do is tie the research to the problem you solve in paragraph one, and then switch that out while you leave paragraphs two and three, your solution and call to action, exactly the same. And so we are giving you six of these trigger templates with our partners at Sixth Sense. The link is in the show notes.